you might not ever have been a pastor. Maybe. But I'll give you a glimpse into what it's like. What I think about, maybe more than anything, is a healthy church. I think about it all the time. All the time. I think about when I'm writing messages. I think about it when I'm reading. It comes up when I'm praying. As a shepherd, you're constantly thinking about your family. And more than I hope uh, people think I'm a big deal, or more than I hope they have fun in our worship services, more than any of that, I want to see you healthy. And that's why this series is so much fun. And the same in youth group, whether the teenagers notice it or not. But I'm not worried necessarily about the game that we play, whether they love the snack that I picked up, or how long small group time went. I want to see them healthy. I want to see them five years after youth group. I want to see them part of a church family. I want to see a real relationship with Jesus. Because if we're just coming to be entertained, spit that out of my mouth. Are we a healthy church? And there's part of me that sometimes gets cynical, and I have to confess that to you. The cynical part of me says it's impossible. We can't do it. But then time and time again, God brings an example, a person, an event, into my life or into my week, and he says, Darren, open your eyes. Kind of like Elijah and the servant, if you remember that story. The town is surrounded by the enemy, and the servant is panicking. What are we going to do? And Elijah says, can't you see them? See what? Elijah prays, God, open his eyes. And he can see the army of God all around them. They were completely fine. Open your eyes. Today in the sermon series on having a healthy church, from what we see in the Bible, we are going to talk about discipling. What does biblical discipling look like? Because to be a healthy church family, we need to, I think, do two things. Love God and love one another. And all of the topics in this sermon series should come back to that. If you hear a sermon on, I don't know, the importance of lights and lasers and fog during the worship service to set the atmosphere, we're probably missing the mark. Loving God and loving other people. All of these should come back to it. And today on discipling, this, I want to say, is just a huge swing at loving one another. Over the next little bit, I'm going to tell you why. I think this is going to become the heartbeat of our church family. This is my last sermon as a youth pastor. How about that? And you're not going to see me for a little while. And then when I come back, I'm going to be all grown up. And on Friday, I got to have the last youth group with the people in this church I love the most. And I got to give them the last Bible study I'll ever get to give them. And I talked to them about how our hearts can stray from God so quickly because of sin and brokenness. 
God can reveal himself to us and so quickly we can get snapped into sin. We need to remember that our salvation is a gift of grace and we need to support one another. This, this I believe is how we're going to adjust the compass a little bit. You're going to say, Darren, where's the church aiming? Where are we going? If you're going to take us somewhere, if church is going to go somewhere, what highway are we on? I think this is the path. We can point the vehicle and go for a drive together. Biblical discipling. Here's the first question as we get started. Who has had the greatest impact on your faith? Take a minute and think about it. Who has had the greatest impact on your faith? Why did they have that kind of an impact on you? Is it because they taught you? Is it because they held you accountable? Is it because they were an encourager? Is it because they loved you? Who has had the greatest impact on your faith? Now, as you think about that person, as you think about what they did, and I hope you can think of someone, my question is this. How can you do that to the next generation? How can you be the person that one day, when the next youth pastor becomes lead pastor of our church, years and years from now, they stand here and they ask you the same question, who's had the greatest impact on your faith? How can you have an impact on the next generation so you are the answer to someone else's question? Because if you and I aren't thinking about this, I think we'll miss the main point. That's a bold thing to say, but I think it might be true. And here today in biblical discipling, here's the main point. And the main point is this. That biblical discipling is walking alongside each other spiritually. You see, discipling has this way of being the world's vaguest word. Or discipleship in church. What is discipleship? Well, it's about coming to a service. What is discipleship? Well, it's sending the kids to Sunday school. What is discipleship? Having the teenagers in youth group. What is a discipleship? Volunteering. What is discipleship? A follower of Jesus helping someone follow Jesus, walking alongside someone spiritually. Are we doing that? Am I doing that? And today we're going to go through the scriptures. We're going to talk about an Old Testament example. We're going to talk about a New Testament example. And then we're going to go to the churches of the New Testament. We're going to look at Colossians, Hebrews, and we're going to look at 1 John. To see what it looked like and what they had to say about following Jesus by walking alongside someone. Spiritually. You ready to have some fun? All right, let's go. We're going to start in the Old Testament. And this week, as I was doing my devos, I was reading through the beginning of Joshua. And the beginning of Joshua is still one of the most exciting places in the Bible for me to be reading. I love it. 
Why? A lot of reasons. The commissioning of this new leader, the miraculous miracles that take place, the supernatural work of God to give them victory, the first footsteps into their inheritance after generations of waiting. But the difference between Joshua and Jesus, as you look from the Old Testament to the New Testament, might be this. Joshua struggled to disciple where Jesus is going to excel at it. Let me give you this example. As they are getting ready to enter this promised land, and I know you haven't been reading Joshua lately, so I've got to bring you into the story. But they've gathered now right at the edge. You imagine like, remember that time Dawn just about fell off the stage? So you kind of stand at the edge of the promised land, and they're waiting to go in. And God says, go for it. Go into it. I will lead the way. So the priests take the Ark of the Covenant. They take God's very presence and they move his presence into the water and the Jordan as it, it's at flood stage. I was telling the youth group about this on Friday. It's hard to imagine what a creek looks like when it's flooding, isn't it? You've never seen that before. But try to imagine that there's a creek and it's overflowing its banks and people are panicking. And God says, let's walk through it. Right through it. How about that? And God's presence goes in. And as the priests, as their feet land on the edge of the water, the water can't compete with the presence of God and it stops upriver. And all of a sudden, there's a clear, dry riverbed as the water flows down, wide enough for a nation of people to walk across. And they step across it. And as they're walking along, God says something to Joshua. He says, get 12 guys. 12 men from the people. From each tribe, take a man and command them. This is chapter 4. Take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. Bring them over with you and lay them down at the place where you lodge tonight. So Joshua gets 12 men. One from every family. Pay attention to that. And every family has to pick up a rock. Now, a long time ago, this is going back a few years, Hayden and Hart would bring rocks into my office and they'd plant them in the middle of my office and they'd give me these gifts, these huge rocks. And it was hilarious. Why? Because you know how hard it is to move a huge rock and they plant it right beside my desk. You imagine these guys going into the riverbed and picking up these stones and putting them on their shoulders, thinking, why are we picking up rocks? Well, at the end of chapter 4, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. They encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground, for Yahweh your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And here's the last part. 
that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Stones set up so that you would fear the Lord your God forever. You flip ahead to Judges chapter 2. And in Judges chapter 2, they've taken the land. Every family now has their plot of inheritance. Now they're farming. They're raising their families. They're living their lives. And in chapter 2 of Judges, verse 8, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at age 110 years old. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. In chapter 2, verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, so they died. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Church, hear these words clearly. The next generation did not know him. This didn't work. Why didn't it work? They had the stones. They were piled up there. It should have worked. They would have walked their families by it every once in a while. That's the time that God saved us. Don't forget the moment God saved us. But somehow, the next generation had no relationship with God and it was over. In comes the times of the judges for they had lost their relationship with Yahweh. Do you know why that makes me nervous? Because so often I feel like that's what church worship services get turned into. If we just bring our kids to church, they'll come to know Jesus. Do you disciple them? No, not really, but I bring them to church. They'll see, they'll see us worship God. They'll see the sermon. They'll see everything. And then I'm sure they'll follow Jesus. And then sometimes our kids don't. And it makes me so nervous because we're talking about how to make a healthy church family. So let's compare Joshua then to Jesus. Jesus being the great discipler. And this one hits me as a pastor. Do you know why? Because Jesus had this knack for doing exactly the opposite of what pastors are tempted to do. What are pastors tempted to do? Gather large amounts of people and talk to them and teach them. And then have large amounts of people keep coming back and back to listen to your teaching. Jesus has these incredible moments. Thousands of people. In one instance, 5,000 plus their families. In another instance, 4,000. And he stands there and he teaches them these incredible things. And at the end of it, they start to walk away. Because the call to give up your life and be a disciple is too much for them. And Peter goes and stops Jesus and says, don't you understand this teaching is too hard? The crowds are walking away. Jesus says, either they're in or they're out. Either they will consume my body and my blood. Either they will be a disciple, Peter, or they won't be. 
but we're not here to gather crowds of people. When Jesus dies, he's got a dozen best friends that he walked with day in and day out. He walked with them. And it says in the book of Acts in chapter 2, there was just over a hundred of them in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes. That's it. Can you imagine speaking to over 10,000 people as a pastor? At the end of it all, you've got about a hundred who really want to listen, who are really in it with you. You'd call that pastor a failure. And by worldly standards, we would clap for the pastors that somehow got 10,000 people in a church family. Wow. They all came to listen. The difference between Joshua and Jesus is that Jesus walked beside them spiritually. And they were willing to die for their faith. One was a leader. One was a discipler. Do you see the difference? One was intentional. One was not. Are you being intentional? Are you hoping that the church and our worship services are going to accomplish something they were never meant to do? Next question for you this morning. Who walks alongside you spiritually? You. Who walks alongside you? Before we talked about who's had the greatest influence on your life spiritually, but say right now, when you are not doing well, when you need someone to pray, when you need someone to check in on you, when you need someone to come over to your house and spend time with you because things aren't going well, who walks alongside you? And if a face or a name is coming to mind, you are experiencing discipleship. And if a face and a name are not coming to mind, you might not be experiencing it. Let's look at some scripture from the New Testament. We're going to go to Colossians. Paul is writing to his church. And Paul has this to say, 28 and 29 of chapter 1. Now this is just a couple verses in the context of a bigger chapter, so you can read the whole chapter if you want. He says, him, this is Jesus, Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Everyone mature in Christ. That stands out to me because often we don't talk about that. Often when I visit with other pastors and they want to know a little bit about Bridgeway, do you know what they ask me? If they've never heard of Bridgeway, what's the first thing you think they ask? So how big's your church family? You know what they don't ask? How mature are the Christians in your church family? How many mature Christians do you have? They ask how many people are in the church family. You'd almost think we're measuring it wrong, hey? 
Paul is writing to this church and he says, what I'm toiling with, with all the energy that God gives me is to just lure in a few more people with a catchy sermon. No, what does he say? If the PowerPoint hits just right, they'll come back another time. No, what does he say? I want to present everyone fully mature in Christ. So as me and Dawn are prepping these sermons, what are we thinking about? As we're thinking about the music that we sing and the prayers that we pray, what are we thinking about? Are you and I becoming mature in Jesus? Are we growing in our faith or not? Because this matters. He was willing to put all his energy into it. It matters. Who is walking alongside you spiritually? Sunday morning. Well, things are going to get very honest now. One thing you're going to notice through my teaching is that I'm willing to just go right into the stuff pastors normally don't talk about. Let's talk about Sunday morning and its purpose. This one gets me. I like that picture. I like that. That's good. What is the goal of a Sunday morning worship service? What is the point? And what are the expectations that we place on it that are unfair and unjust? You see, Sunday morning is this vertical relationship builder, it seems to me. The point of the prayers that we pray, the songs that we sing, the fact that I'm going to teach you about what God is saying through Scripture is that you and God will have this stronger and deeper and more rich and mature relationship. Vertical, you and him growing together. But some people try to treat the worship service a little differently. And they're hoping that it will be the discipleship tool for them. They're hoping that if all they have in church is this, that this will be enough. I'm not here to scold you into saying that if all you do is come to worship services and you don't have anything else in your life, bad Christian. What I'm saying is that you might have noticed that if you're not involved in the church family, if no one's walking alongside you spiritually and all you enjoy is Sunday mornings, you might not be growing in your faith as much as you'd expect. Because you're placing expectations on this moment that are not fair. What is the point of the Sunday morning worship service? How about this? What if it's the equipping of the saints? What if this moment, this hour and a half, is to prepare you to go out and do the work of discipling? And discipling doesn't take place in this room. What if this moment is to encourage you and build you up and point you back to Jesus and to give you tools for practical ministry so that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you are discipling. You are worshiping God. You are glorifying him and making him known. What if this is a stepping stone to the rest of the week and this isn't all of it? You've probably heard pastors use this example before. If Sunday morning was the only spiritual meal that you ate, wouldn't you be starving the rest of the week? Can you imagine if you only ate once? This isn't meant to be it. But we treat it sometimes like this is it. 
as long as I have Jesus for an hour and a half on Sunday, the rest of it I'm willing to let slide. The rest of the week is for me and my work and my family. I'm busy. You don't understand, Darren, I'm busy. But Sunday morning, I'll focus on my faith for an hour and a half. So I ask you again, who is walking alongside you spiritually? And this question, who are you walking alongside spiritually? You see, if the Sunday morning worship service isn't going to disciple you, then who are you walking alongside spiritually and who stands with you? See, when your life isn't going well, when your family's not going well, when work's not going well, when your faith is struggling, when all of these different things that do happen in life come caving down on you and you need support from your church family, the worship service doesn't come driving to your house to come take care of you. But your best friend will. Are they going to pray with you? Are they going to encourage you from their scripture reading? Are they just going to sit with you and listen? You know what? Sometimes discipling is sitting with someone quietly and listening. You don't think there were moments when Jesus and his disciples, after teaching them all day long, they were struggling. And Jesus would just come and just listen to them? John, Peter, James, how are you guys doing? What do you think discipling looked like? It was just this constant devotion time where Jesus just read scripture over and over again. He lived life with them. So if we deeply care about taking care of one another, then who are you walking alongside spiritually? The next passage of scripture is from 1 John. And in 1 John... Chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, it says this. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also Love his brother. See, John, throughout all of 1 John, is trying to get this message across to the churches so, so, so clearly. And it doesn't surprise me that later he's going to write Revelation, this vision of Jesus and his kingdom coming back to encourage these churches because these churches are suffering. And what does John see in the churches? People that say, I love God. I love him. Are you loving each other? Well, I'm busy. I got things to do. (laughs) And John says, that's fine. Just come back next week. I'm so glad you came to the worship service. No, he doesn't. He says, you fake Christians. You sit in the worship service and you sing the songs and you smile at the pastor, but you go home and you don't even love each other. That's not okay. So when me and Dawn are dreaming about a healthy church family, what we're praying for is a church that loves him and who loves each other. 
not a church that ends up looking like the churches John had to write this to. You understand what I'm saying? This, this should be the mark of a Christian. They will know we are Christians by our By the fact that we go to a building on Sunday morning for an hour and a half? No. I say that kind of in fun, but at the same time, by our love. Because we're walking with one another spiritually. They will know we are Christians by our love. That's written in the context of loving one another within the church. Remember where Jesus is speaking. It begins with love inside the family. So how are we going to start using our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays and our Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays in between these moments of the worship service? Who can we walk alongside and who can walk alongside us? If you go to Hebrews in chapter 10... Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. I know I'm jumping all over the place today. eh? This is three different authors talking about such a similar thing. Chapter 10, verse 24 and then 25. The writer and the author of Hebrews says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This verse got tossed around a lot the last few years. It made me sad. There was people that hate the government that thought this was a catchy way to slap them in the face. What they missed is what he's writing about. What he's writing about is people who gave up on each other when they should have stuck together. This church family did not give up on one another. We are stirring up one another to love and good deeds. I see it all across this church family. But in their day, there were people who were neglecting each other And he says, we need this. All the more is the day that Jesus comes back is getting closer and closer and closer. You need each other. Like, yes, you can take your Bible and you can go home and you can pray at home by yourself. But without the church family, who is walking alongside you spiritually? And who are you walking alongside? Who's discipling you? Well, I watched this pastor on YouTube. Okay, you're learning but who is walking alongside you? Are we willing to make the sacrifice to walk alongside one another, though? I love this picture. It made me really happy when I picked it. Oh, words are jumping off the box. That's okay. The reason why I pose this as a question is this. Because discipleship costs you something. 
you don't know how many times over the past two or three years I got in just this cynical state where I struggled with believing whether the church really cared for one another. I know we love God. That's been clear for years and years and years, but I really truly wondered if we cared for one another, sacrificially cared for one another. And then I started to see it. I started to see it. I started to see moms who are taking care of other moms, walking alongside them spiritually. I started to see dads who are taking care of other dads, walking alongside them spiritually. And now I see it sweeping across the church family. I see adults meeting with young adults, older generation encouraging the younger generation Bible studies and prayer groups are just popping up organically all across this church family. We don't even have to organize it or plan it. People are just reaching out to one another saying, I want to walk alongside someone spiritually. Do you want to walk alongside someone spiritually? And people are saying yes. But it costs you something. It costs you energy. It costs you time. It might cost you your personal life. Are you willing to give that up? Because if you're not, you'll keep coming to these Sunday morning services, and that's about it. That's the only sacrifice we're willing to make because discipleship requires you in the ugly moments of the day. Your friend shoots you a text that says, I'm struggling today, and you reply back, I'll pray for you. You're walking alongside someone spiritually. Someone sends you a message and says, I just had a really bad week. And you say, all right, come over to my house. I want to visit tonight. I want to care for you spiritually. That evening, you're going to have a nice quiet evening at home. You're going to rest. Now a friend is coming over. Why? Because we are walking alongside someone spiritually. You had to give up putting your kids in a third sport because you're going to go to a Bible study because you need someone to walk alongside you spiritually. It's the kind of stuff me and Chantel have to talk about as we start planning our lives with all these boys. How do we leave room for this sacrifice? But once you're in this, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice anymore. Once you're in this, this is what you love. This all of a sudden becomes more fun than all the other things that pull at your attention. That's what I found. That's what I see in some other people in our church family. Story time with Pastor Darren. Here we go. I was reading in this book this week on discipling, not disciplining, discipling. That's an inside joke. And I want to read you this little paragraph. I love this. Suppose. Suppose that tomorrow, a non-Christian friend of yours in another city, who you've been praying for years, becomes a Christian and starts attending a church in their city. How would you want that church to receive your friend whom you love? Presumably, you'd want the congregation as a whole to take responsibility for your friend. You'd want the elders and pastors to teach him. You'd want a number of individuals in particular to reach out to him, to take him under their wing, to disciple him. 
You'd want them to teach and model what it means to study the Bible, to walk in righteousness, to evangelize, to be a Christian spouse or parent, to stand up to the world and to start discipling other people in turn. How would you rejoice if that church took responsibility for your friend like that? Do you receive and disciple the members of your church like this? Have you been helping others follow Jesus? Are you the answer to the prayers of Christians in other cities? A healthy church is what we're aiming for. A healthy church. But a healthy church is a healthy family. And all across this room are the members of your family. Do you love them? That's not a flippant question. I'll ask you again. Do you love them? Because if there's people in this family who have no one walking alongside them spiritually, Holy Spirit, would you show us how to help? You want to ask me, Darren, how will you know when we're a healthy church family? I'll give you one idea. When we can confidently say that everyone in this family has someone walking alongside them spiritually. That sounds like a pretty healthy church family to me. But that requires us to turn our heads just a little bit and start to really love the people around us. Not just the person sitting right here or right here. Everybody. Because here's another secret I'll tell you. We've got to wrap this up. Come on, Kennedy. Here's another secret I'll tell you. The pastor can't save everybody. Boy, do I want to do it, though. You just asked Chantel about this. Boy, do I want to do it. I just want to disciple everybody. It'd be so much easier. If I could just teach all of you and walk alongside all of you, it'd be so much easier. But I can't do it. Peter Nickel couldn't do it. How many people did he have a lifelong impact on? A few dozen, maybe? How many people am I going to have a lifelong impact on, like really have an impact on. Doesn't? Maybe. What does that mean? That means I can't walk alongside all of you spiritually. I need you. I need you to rise up. I need elders. I need deacons. I need people in the family. You have to look around and say, Holy Spirit, who are you placing on my heart to walk alongside? Because the expectation can't be that Darren will walk alongside me. He'll read the Bible with me and pray for me and come over to my house when I'm hurting. He will disciple me. I can't do 200. I can do a dozen. But the best part is, this family is full of people, so we have more than enough. But that means we all have to start thinking a little bit like that great shepherd that Don talked about. And who are the sheep in the family who are wandering away? I see them in church sometimes, but not all the time. I see that mom, or that dad, or that adult, that man or woman, that teenager, 
that grandpa, grandma, that senior, I see them wandering away. Their faith isn't really growing. And you say, I'm going to go hit that sheep. I'm going to go walk beside them. That's what I want us to start to build this church family on. And I'm not neglecting the part where we love and worship God. I think that's one of our strengths. I want to see us take that and build on it and start loving one another, really loving one another. I'm super excited about the future. There's going to be lots of roadblocks, speed bumps, challenges along the way. But every time I talk to someone in this church who's being discipled, it gets me more excited for the next person who's going to get discipled in this church. The worship team's going to come up. We're going to sing one more song before we go home. And as they come on up, I want to pray, but something kind of bold. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us who we can walk alongside. And maybe if you're already walking alongside somebody, the Holy Spirit's just going to confirm it in your heart. But this is a bold prayer. I don't say this flippantly. This isn't a show. This is real. And when you pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal something to you, he just might. Then you have to choose whether you're going to be obedient to the call. And I have to be willing to pray the same prayer and be just as obedient when the Lord places a name on my heart. And I make you a promise I'm going to do it. So bow with me and let's pray together. Holy Spirit, living and indwelling us. Spirit of God, who made the disciples speak in languages they had never known. Spirit of God, who could raise people up from the dead. Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, we need your help, and we need your help right now. You have the mind of Jesus. You know the thoughts of the Lord. And I ask that you would help us to discern who it is, Lord Jesus, who it is, Father, that you have placed in our family for us to love. I pray, Lord Jesus, right now that you would use your spirit to reveal to me and to everyone else in this room, is there someone that you want us to walk alongside? Bring that person's name and their face to mind right now. Father, we love you and we worship you. You are the Holy One. You are creator and you are king. And we pledge, Lord Jesus, that we are going to love you and honor you with our lives. We're going to confess our sin to you and we're going to humble ourselves before you and we're going to submit to your reign and to your rule. And we thank you that you've welcomed us into your family. And now, Lord, in response to that, would you teach us how to love one another? In the deepest way we know how, will you teach us how to really love one another so that no one in our family will ever walk alone again? Make us, Lord Jesus, a healthy church 
build this church upon this foundation. We love you, Lord Jesus, and this is our prayer. We pray this in your name. Amen.